So our state is not white by accident. And why can't we face our xenophobia and our racism? It's coming. It's a delayed reckoning. You know, we have a chance to do better, maybe, than other states have, because we should be able to learn from these other states. But that takes a lot of will of, of white Vermonters to recognize this as a problem, even with how white our state is. Welcome to The Portable Humanist, the podcast where you can listen to Vermont Humanities Talks and learn when you're on the go. I'm Ryan Newswanger. The day after the verdict in the George Floyd murder trial was announced, the Center for Whole Communities in Burlington hosted a discussion between Delma Jackson and Vermont State Senator Keisha Ram titled, What Does Race Have to Do With It? Barriers to Civic Engagement and Equity in Vermont. The event was part of the Why It Matters Civics and Electoral Participation Initiative sponsored by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Federation for State Humanities Councils. Senator Ram serves Chittenden County, where she is the first woman of color and the youngest woman in history to have a seat in the state Senate. Delma Jackson is an activist, facilitator, writer, counselor, and lecturer with the Center for Whole Communities. He co-hosts the Dive In Justice podcast with Shandine Garcia, which you can find at wholecommunities.org podcast and wherever the best podcasts are found. Here's Delma. I wanted to open up by sharing a piece at the uh, suggestion of my co-conspirator here, Keisha. I uh, definitely think it's appropriate for the, for the time we're in. And I love the fact that it is written I love and hate the fact that it's written so long ago, but still so um, deeply relevant to right now. Um, this is a piece from Langston Hughes uh, called Let America Be America Again. Um, let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plane, seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme. That any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Say who you are that mumbles in the dark and who you are that draws your veil across the stars. I am the poor, white, fooled, and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery's scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of doggy dog of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own breed. I am the farmer, bondsman, 
to the soil. I am the worker sold to the machine. I am the Negro servant to you all. I am the people humble, hungry, mean. Hungry yet today, despite the dream. Beaten yet today, oh pioneers. I am the man who never got ahead. The poorest worker bartered through the years. Yet I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world while still a surf of kings who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet this mighty daring sings. In every brick and stone, in every furrow turn that's made America the land it has become. Oh, I'm the man who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home. For I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore and Poland's pain and England's grassy lay and torn from black Africa's strand I came to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me, surely not me. The millions are on relief today. The millions shot down when we strike. The millions who have nothing for our pay. For all the dreams we've dreamed and all the songs we've sung and all the hopes we've held and all the flags we've hung, the millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has yet been. And yet must be the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me an ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again, America. Oh yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain, all, all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. Thanks for bringing that back to my consciousness, uh, Keisha. I appreciate that. It's been a long time since I read that one. So thank you. I, I didn't want to sort of overexpose you from the start, you know, but it felt like just the only way to start was to hear your voice and through you to hear Langston Hughes' voice and the conversation about humanities. And I, I know that, you know, all I could do when I woke up today was look for poetry and the words and art of others to sort of get myself through the day. So just appreciating you and thank you. I woke up unexpectedly angry and maybe I shouldn't have started off my day listening. Um, like the minute my alarm goes off, my Alexa is set to start reading me um, or playing the latest episode from uh, the daily. Right. And so today they happen to be, you know, talking about the, the trial and the verdict. 
And one of the guests named the fact that we've lost someone to police violence in this country every single day since the trial started. I didn't bother diving into the demographics, but um, I think we're all, uh, hopefully most of us at least are familiar with the, how those patterns tend to play out. And I'm sorry for uh, the loss of any life, obviously. But yeah, I just, I'm grateful for what the verdict might, might mean for the Floyd family specifically um, as a step in a direction toward healing. I couldn't help but think about the young lady that was just killed in Ohio. I couldn't help but think about the young man that was just gunned down in Minneapolis, you know, while the trial is still going on. And I can't help but wonder about all of the unnamed cases that have not even come to our uh, public consciousness yet. And there's a, yeah, there's a rage there that I'm trying to not for the first time and not for the last time, hold and grapple with. Um, and I think Langston Hughes' piece um, holds both of those, right? This idea of let America be America again. And there's an idealism that he speaks to while simultaneously acknowledging the fact that it's never been that for him. And Keisha, I think you mentioned just a minute ago, something that you had also been holding around Du Bois's work. And I'd be curious to hear, if you don't mind, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. Um, I'd be curious to hear more about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think without really articulating it this way, I turn to the humanities and history a lot for you know, touchstones and, and guidance. And the other thing that I've really been sitting with today that's been grounding me is, um, is excerpts from W.E.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk, um, which I highly recommend to folks. And I think when, around the same time that he published that, he put out an article in The Atlantic in 1897 um, about that kind of centered around double consciousness um, and double consciousness being the idea that I think once you sort of speak it plain, it, it feels so obvious. Um, especially if you're a black or brown person, um, you know, but it's the idea that the, that black Americans particularly walk around thinking constantly of how they perceive themselves, but how others perceive them and particularly how white people perceive them because how white people perceive them in that moment or systemically could mean their livelihoods could mean their access to opportunity and in many cases could mean their lives. And so they're constantly having to, as, as he would say, measure, measure themselves by society's tape in terms of what is someone perceiving of me right now. And so you start to become so conscious of how you're being perceived and how white people work. And they may have no idea how much work, you know, particularly black Americans are going through um, to survive by be, by engaging with that double consciousness and that that double consciousness eventually becomes two selves that you live with and that starts to eat away at your soul. Um, and one of the most poignant things he says in that piece is, although you have these two selves, you wish for them both to be able to grow old. That was in 1890. 
seven. I mean, of course, when, you know, probably the life expectancy for, for Black Americans was, was far worse, although it has not improved that much. And folks may know about, you can go three T-stops away in Boston and have a difference in life expectancy of 30 years because of the differences in, in wealth and treatment of Black mm-hmm. Americans. Just not much has changed. And it also made me think about my life and role as a as the daughter of an Indian immigrant, as a kind of ambiguously brown woman, and not to say that we don't. And in fact, I think this relates to how artists often operate as well, you know, having multiple layers of consciousness so that they can see reality through different people's lenses. But I, you know, I've often, I think, finally been able to say that, you know, being a light-skinned brown woman in this country also feels like a triple consciousness of recognizing that I will never be afforded certain privileges and experiences for white people, including my mother. <laughs> um, but I will never uh, know the depth of, of pain and subjugation that Black Americans face either. And so living in this kind of inter- interstitial consciousness of, you know, knowing what I have and what I don't have and what, what power that still gives me to do something, um, you know, has been sort of what I've been sitting with a lot today. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think the other piece that's coming up for me a lot right now is what does it mean to move through the world in a cisgendered male body and being able to recognize the privilege that comes with that, right? There is a privilege to that. And I have to be cognizant of that even as I understand what it means that this male body is also black, right? Um, and so to your piece around, you know, I'll never know what it means to move through the world in a black body. I never know what it means to move through the world as a woman, to be perceived as a woman and all of the things that come with that. And so when I think about the humanities in particular, um, anybody who knows me knows how much I love lit, particularly uh, science fiction is like, that's my it's my jam, right? And one of the things I think I appreciate is the um, the space that sci-fi creates to imagine, right? Um, and to take what already is and imagine into it something different. Yeah, if I could sort of build on that, you know, Bridgerton was like a terrible show in my book. So I'm just gonna put that out there. But, <laughs> you know, if anybody watched it, which I did the whole thing, you know, one of the nice sort of things is that a lot of black and brown people don't get that level of escapism where because of the color of your skin, something bad is not about to happen to you around the corner. And, you know, I feel like that has been more and more true, thankfully. And it's actually, I mean, we're talking about this being the platinum age of television as we're all consuming a lot of Netflix, et cetera, where, other people are being allowed to tell stories that aren't about just their pain. Um, and that actually hit home for me, you know, I, I, you know, of course the Humanities Council is represented here and, and a book that was really important to the Humanities Council this past year was The Hate You Give, you know, which is an incredible book for young adults about, you know, black, black pain and, uh, and a young man um, dying at the hands of the police and his, you know, young black female friends sort of being the narrator and the one to pick up the pieces after that. And I was working with Essex High School on, you know, 
unpacking that film after many people had read the book and pretty much one of the only black staff members at Essex High School just said, I just don't, I just don't wanna talk about this book. I just don't want us to always be focused on black people getting killed and, and, and black pain and, and voyeur, voyeurism into black pain as the way that white people learn. You know, it was before we had to relive George Floyd dying for nine minutes and 28 seconds over and over again, over and over again on television. And I say we, but I don't really mean me. I mean, that is, we should, it shouldn't take that, you know, once a year or whatever, you know, nonsense for, for white people to wake up. Because if it does, that's a lot of black suffering that white people need to consume to change. Um, and I've been reflecting a lot on that because as a brown woman, again, with a white mother who prides herself in never having gotten a ticket, a moving violation, you know, et cetera, three days after George Floyd was murdered was the first time she said to me at the age of my age of 33, she said, you've had a different life experience because of the color of your skin. And, you know, because I married an Indian man and you, you look different and it took George Floyd's murder for her to say that to me. And I just, it was incredible for me, but it was, you know, that instant feeling of guilt that that's what it takes for even those who love us and know us for that long um, to see that pain. And yet, you know, a good friend of mine today who's organizing a May 25th George Floyd Remembrance um, and Reflection Day, she said, the only thing I can appreciate about that video being out there, and, and even though it's causing so much pain to Black Americans, is white Americans just can't say they don't know anymore. There's just no saying I don't know. I'm often asking people, do you not understand or do you not agree? And now I feel like if you don't agree, fine, you know, but you do understand, it's, it's there. I wish George Floyd was alive today, but that is what his death has given, at least our country, the inability to look away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, one, of the early, one of the thoughts I had this morning is reflected back from what you just said. And you basically, um, we all had to witness someone being um, in effect publicly, very publicly lynched. Um, and instead of a noose, it was someone's using their body weight and, and placing a knee on someone's neck, but it comes down to forced violent suffocation and death. And you had in America had to see basically um, a smartphone camera based modern day lynching in order to get and still and not only did we have to see it, but I think you had to have that coupled with the sort of national organizing that we had in order to maybe push folks toward the conviction, right? So every time it's a little, anytime it's anything less than a lynching, then we're still gonna have to wonder whether or not we'll get justice. And that is infuriating to me. It's infuriating. When I did my um, 
my work from my master's degree, um, it was looking at this, the, it was basically a deep dive into the combination of um, academia, medicine, um, and pop culture as a, as institutions that co-created a story that we cannot legislate away, right? And that's why history keeps repeating itself because of the stories we continue to tell ourselves about what it means to be of a certain color. Baldwin has this quote that I really love. Uh, he said, the country's image of the Negro, which hasn't very much to do with the Negro, has never failed to reflect with a kind of frightening accuracy, the state of mind of the country, right? If you wanna know where the country is at any given time, look at their pop culture, look at the images they've created and perpetuated. And that quote to me was so on point. And in doing my, my homework for my thesis, it was like, I did not fully appreciate the ways in which, um, whether it was Robinson Crusoe or, or Marco Polo, these folks who I was taught to, to admire for their contributions to Western said what was left out is what they had to say about the folks they were encountering around the world and the meaning they made of what they looked like, how they spoke, how, they, how their culture was different from you know, the, the author or the narrator's culture and what meaning was made from that. And from there we get into, if I jump ahead a bit, America's first form of stage productions that weren't borrowed from Europe were blackface minstrels. What does that mean? That that is what you created as your first contribution to pop culture. Is you putting on blackface painting, telling jokes and singing and dancing for mass consumption. Just a couple years after you invent radio and it becomes popularized, to this day, the most popular radio program in history is still Amos and Andy, which is basically a menstrual show on the radio. I hope the pattern is clear as I'm speaking. <laughs> you understand? Well, I just want to add, it's so much a part of Vermont history too. I mean, the, the cakewalk at UVM was so hard to get rid of and in fact, you know, a lot of people say, oh no, they, they, changed, they changed it to green face, which is like, okay. You know, but also pictures were black and white then. So it was like dark green and still looked black in pictures. And then there was so much protest. They went back to black face. Um, and I, you know, sometimes remind the baseball fans in the legislature that Jackie Robinson was on his way to Vermont to try and end the cakewalk, this, this minstrel show that happened at UVM and his plane got grounded in New York and he never made it. It was when the first black student body president was um, trying to get, you knew Jackie Robinson was trying to get him up here to end the cakewalk, it took another 10 years. And I still hear people to this day talk about how much they miss the cakewalk. You find a cakewalk poster in people's house. Um, I don't, I, I honestly don't want it to take a predator in the White House and a black man having to die on national television for nine minutes and 28 seconds for us to get to this point. I'm still struggling with why, how did we get here where, where people are finally acknowledging the pain that they're, what they think is fun and games and art has caused other people. And they're finally willing to let it go and not hold on to it so tightly. That's like just happening right now, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we present, half the picture, you know, 
the cakewalk piece, for instance, I imagine, and I think you're speaking to this, right? At some point it becomes removed from its origins to the point where people are willing to fight to keep it, who may not be willing to do so had it been presented in its fullness to begin with, right? Not that some wouldn't, <laughs> right? Uh, and I'll just say this last thing too, right? So we come out of radio and then 1911 is when Hollywood comes online. And by 1915, their first feature length motion picture is Birth of a Nation. Mm -hmm. hmm? And it's, and that is where we go from singing and dancing to dangerous. That is the foundation of the story that I am inherently criminal and dangerous and violent and superhuman. Mm. So I have to be cold mm -hmm. in effect, you know, and then that gets picked up and, and like I always tell folks, even if you never got into law, even if you never got into science and academia where some of these ideas also took on life, pop culture, the humanities, the arts, that is the great unifier. That is the one where most of us are going to bump into these ideas over and over again, even if we don't touch some of these other pieces. And so it, it is both um, promising in its power, um, but with that comes, you know, to quote uh, Spider-Man, right? That with that power comes great responsibility. And we have been historically not only irresponsible, not only negligent, but we have been um, tyrannical, demoniacal, <laughs> right? Um, and you can't legislate that away. You could pass all the stuff in the world, but if we don't tell a different story, then we're gonna keep seeing um, the same dynamics play out over and over again. Um, Are you, I have a question for you, and I imagine I know the answer, but I will not presume. Um, are you in effect, do you consider yourself in effect a hopeful person? Yeah. You know, somebody was, somebody was saying to me today, wow, I mean, you really, you really hit, hit the ground running in the Senate. I said, I'm running. I don't know if I've hit the ground. So, you know, I really feel like that describes my current state of being like the work is too urgent. There is too much to do to sort of stop and worry about myself, you know, and the egotistical part of whether or not I'm effective or, you know, giving myself hope every day, you know, at the end of yesterday was obviously such a gripping day, you know, just, I felt so many emotions in my body just couldn't unclench. And then around nine o'clock at night, these students from Castleton College, mostly black students, sent me a picture and they had just started an NAACP chapter at Castleton College in Rutland. And, you know, I had made a little video for them to just say, I'm here when you need me, you know, I'm just here. And, you know, what I often will tell young people is that I feel like if I say they give me hope, then I'm giving up in a way and sort of like, you know, take it, take it from here. You know, it's up to you now. 
Um, and that's uh, really unfair to them, you know? And I, I know what that feels like as a millennial. Like we thought our, you know, we thought we were giving handed a raw deal. Watch out for Gen Z. <laughs> you know, they are angry and they deserve to be. And, you know, I was, I got so angry and people say, oh, you give me hope. It's like, well, what are you doing? You know? And so I tell young people, they give me courage because I need to make this world better for them. I need to flank them. I need to make the path easier for them to walk so that they can get further. And so this hope, I'm like, what are you doing? Just sitting around having hope, you know, for me, I, I want courage. I want us all to know that we have work to do. You know, we can't, we can't place our faith in somebody else or someone else as Alice Walker would say, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. How about you, Dom? How are you feeling on the hope scale? On the hope scale, I consider myself largely an um, an optimist, and I'd be lying if I didn't say with that comes the assumption that there has to be in that some escapism, <laughs> right? Um, that informs that optimism. Um, it ebbs and flows. Honestly, it ebbs and flows. I think the older I get, I'm in my early 40s right now. And I think the older I get, the better I get at naming where I am at any given time. And um, so when I opened up the call and referenced my rage, it helps to maintain to it helps to acknowledge it because if I can't acknowledge it, it's going to bubble up in ways that don't feel useful. And then I'm all too aware of what happens when I have rage that I express outwardly. I'm all too aware of what the world has to say about me specifically, uh, you know, and embodying what I look like. I don't have the, um, the leeway to just have a fit in public, right? There are consequences to that that will impact uh, my three children, you know? Um, and so I, yeah, um, ultimately I'm hopeful, but there are definitely days where it's harder to be in that space. And I feel, it feels like a wheel that we just keep spinning around. Yeah. 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 I, I know we want to open it up to questions soon. I think the last thing I'll say is it's just like, I've been thinking a lot about the word humanity, you know, like we're talking about the humanities and it's just like, you know, we're talking about public safety and policing in one of my committees in Senate government operations. And, you know, they're like, what if we had an office of communications or an office of this or that, you know? And I'm like, I need police humanity. Like, I don't, I don't know what else to call. I don't know how to tell people to stop killing other people. You know, I need some humanity. So, you know, I'm just sitting with that word. Like, what is the, what, if you say you're, you care about the humanities, you're part of the humanities, like, what's your responsibility in this moment to actually, as, as my friend Rajni Eddins would say, you know, past whiteness is humanity. How do we get there? At this point in their conversation, Delma and Keisha took some questions from the Zoom audience, moderated by Ginny McGinn from the Center for Whole Communities. 
So there's another really good one here. Uh, why does Vermont seem to have such a denial of its own racism and xenophobia? How can we keep pushing the conversation that can lead to change? Because it's the whitest state in the country. I mean, because unless something is staring you in the face and saying, this is painful and this is what you're doing, we don't see it. And now we are seeing it. And we have actually done a lot in Vermont's history to render invisible people of color, right? So we were one of the last stops on the Underground Railroad. We had fugitive slaves who came here and worked on farms. We had the black population double at the turn of the century with, with the arrival and the departure of the Buffalo soldiers. We had major figures in history who were black Americans who left, who left and felt that they couldn't get what they needed from the state, you know, and we literally tried to erase people with eugenics and being an intellectual center of eugenics. So, you know, people should watch the SNL skit about Vermont and about how it's the white promised land. Um, it's painful. It's hilarious and it's painful because that was the point. You know, it, there are, as some folks may know, real estate videos, recruitment videos, come move to Vermont. We want people like you, racial covenants, covenants that are anti-Semitic. You know, Vermont was built and promoted as the white promised land. And that meant that it was very inconvenient if you had people of color here who were settled as farmers, et cetera. And we, are, we have very high profile cases right now before the Human Rights Commission, the, one of the only multi-generation black owned farms where they have been harassed by the local state troopers. And former representative Kaya Morris, you know, who, who was harassed to the point of leaving Bennington, got no relief, had to leave the county. I help, I, I feel like there is a underground railroad all, all the time in Vermont right now. I'm not sure if people know that. I help, you know, people who feel unsafe in their counties um, move to Chittenden County. And often when they get to Chittenden County, it's better, they feel less visible, but it doesn't go away and they leave the state. So our state is not white by accident. And why can't we face our xenophobia and our racism? It's coming. It's a delayed <laughs> reckoning. You know, we have a chance to do better maybe than other states have because we should be able to learn from these other states. But that takes a lot of will of, of white Vermonters to recognize this as a problem even with how white our state is. I think reckoning with the history that Keisha just laid down is a big part of that. Um, I think young people should be intentionally exposed to that sort of information about Vermont's history. And if I can zoom out just a little bit, I think the Northeast period has this idea of itself as a liberal bastion um, when there's plenty of history to, to kind of combat that. Um, not just history, I mean, I did notice that the the vote for Trump went up when he ran again in Vermont. And that's very telling, right? More people voted for his reelection than they did his election in Vermont, right? So there is a, there's some deep seated, I think it's easy to be, history has shown us it's very easy to be liberal until those people show up at your door, right? It's kind of like, we all want to, um, we all want solar, and we all want wind, but we don't want that thing in our backyard, right? It's, it's that same kind of dynamic. Um, yeah, Vermont was cool with people of color until 
masses of them started showing up and then it's like, no, you got to go. You got to go. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I'm going to take us to this question. I'm going to read it. Um, it's a long one. Uh, thank you, Liz Curry, for this one. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on whether we're entering a time when you see ways or can we can, I, I'm guessing, build anti-racist communities outside of our dominant white culture's historical patterns of legal action as the only way to get an ounce of racial justice in the form of lawsuits against educational institutions, police officers and departments, et cetera, Title IX, et cetera. So I, 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 I'm hearing this as a cultural and structural, the structural solutions on, alongside the cultural and what is what are ways we can continue to build anti-racist communities outside of dominant white, white dominant culture? I mean, it's, it's so hard to read that question without thinking about the fact that, that young black men make up two and a half percent of the population in Chittenden County and 25% of those charged as youthful offenders. So like for whatever legal victory we get, it's a whack-a-mole for, you know, hundreds of horrible, of horrible things happening, um, you know, that build a pattern that we at some point can't ignore, you know, and I think the, I think the legal system is a really important part of the solution. I have never really thought about it as the way to build anti-racist work, you know, definitionally. Um, I also don't think policy work is necessarily the place to do that. There are a lot of people right now, we had this conversation in committee about reparations. And I believe in reparations. I believe we need to get there. But the truth part before the recognition is really critical. And in fact, not just for white people to finally understand why reparations is critical, but for black and indigenous people to come together and get healing out of whatever happens, right? So we can't, we in the legislature can't dictate what that looks like. What form would reparations take? Who would be eligible? You know, what harms are we trying to repair? Um, we don't answer those questions well in the political or legal system. In fact, the arts and humanities are better at helping us answer those questions. I, I look to, to thinkers in the state like Emily Bernard, you know, local author to help answer those questions. Um, I look to indigenous healers to help answer those questions. I don't look to my colleagues in the legislature and, you know, no knock on them, you know, but I think what we're in the process of doing right now is trying to take resources and get them to people who've been exploited essentially. And that's what I said in committee today, you know, we have built our anti-racist community efforts on the unpaid labor and the emotional taxation of so many people of color in the state that needs to stop. And I think when I consider what reparations could be a big part of that is I need space with other people who know what it is for us to figure out what we need. I don't need anybody else to figure that out. We have the expertise. Leave, give me the like resources and then leave me alone. <laughs> That's what I need. When I think of reparations, I need like land and some, some resources. And I don't need nothing else from y'all. I don't. We will figure the rest out. And I promise you, within a generation or two, we could be the envy of the world. And while we're figuring that stuff out on our own and creating healing spaces and kind of leaning both into the past and into the future to heal, uh, cause I'm a big proponent of both like 
old school practices, but I also love my technologies and my creature comforts and, and I, I want it all. I want it all. So I need the resources to be able to do that. And I think we can make a strong case for why those resources should be supplied. No problem. Um, and I want to see my indigenous brothers and sisters in on that conversation. But while we're doing that work, there's there's this other piece that needs to be happening simultaneously, right? Um, around reconciliation amongst the white population in this country. Um, because if white supremacy is still needed, then that speaks to a deficit of spirit that needs to be addressed and can only be addressed amongst white America. That's Delma Jackson, writer and podcaster, in conversation with Vermont State Senator Keisha Ram. Thanks for listening to The Portable Humanist. Visit our podcast website at portablehumanist.org for a transcript of this episode and for more information about Vermont Humanities.